I'm here to uh, clean the pool. Your name, sir? Uh, I'm the pool cleaner. Uh, darling, the pool's been cleaned yesterday. Yes, the pool was clean yesterday. Today, the pool is dirty. Somebody made a mistake in the pool. I'd like to go clean the pool, please. What do you mean by a mistake? Someone had a little, uh, how would we say, accident in the pool. Accident? You want me to spell it out? It's something floating in the pool. <laughs> I see, uh... I ain't happy about it. I'm not thrilled, but it's my job. I have to do it. You have to write these names down. I have to clean pools. Where's the pool at? Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the mid-1990s. You can read all of my written work. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Speaking of the 90s, I do another podcast that's very similar to this one. And it's called To the 90s and Beyond. And you can find the link to that at my website. Today I'm going to be getting into this third part of this three-part series, looking at cops that come from out of town to the Los Angeles region to solve cases. Already looked at Die Hard and Beverly Hills Cop. Well, there was another film in the Beverly Hills Cop series that took place in the 1980s, and it's called Beverly Hills Cop 2, of course. Like the first one, it's an R-rated film. It does have violence, nudity, sexual humor, and language. The runtime is an hour and 40 minutes. Eddie Murphy returns as the star with Judge Reinhold, John Ashton also returning, Bridget Nielsen, Jurgen Prochnow, Ronnie Cox, Alan Garfield, Dean Stockwell, Paul Reiser, Gil Hill are also in the film. Tony Scott is the director this time. The screenplay credited to Larry Ferguson and Warren Skerritt. Now, discussions uh, of doing a sequel to Beverly Hills Cop, they actually began before Beverly Hills Cop was even released in theaters. They were so sure it was going to be a big hit. Yet, Paramount still wanted to take a wait-and-see approach because they didn't want to invest all of this money, and then suddenly it backfired on them. But they really didn't have to wait long to realize that Beverly Hills Cop was going to be a huge success. It shattered box office records, actually, for the highest-grossing comedy the highest grossing Christmas release and the highest grossing R-rated film of all time to that point. In fact, only four prior films of any kind had made more money during their first month of release, and that included E.T., Return of the Jedi, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and Ghostbusters. A Paramount wanted to strike while the iron was hot. They thought about launching a Beverly Hills Cop TV series right away. That TV series was going to co-star John Ashton and Judge Reinhold, who that would be reprising their roles as Taggart and Rosewood. They also would have Axel Foley in the show, but of course, Eddie Murphy was becoming too popular to do a TV show at that point. And it was really complicated trying to find somebody that could fill Eddie Murphy's shoes. So it wasn't a sure thing. And then finally, Paramount determined that this TV series was probably going to halt the momentum of the film series if it wasn't really done right, or at least fans didn't like it. So they nixed the TV avenue shortly after they conceived it. Now, as for what they wanted to do for the next film in the series, producers Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, they felt that the sequels didn't need to be set in Beverly Hills. It didn't make sense to do it in Beverly Hills again because Axel was not going to be a fish out of water there anymore. So a lot of the reason for doing Beverly Hills Cop was no longer there. Instead, they thought that it could be kind of like a, an episodic series, each film in this series, the Axel Foley series, would represent a new case taking place in a different location featuring the character Axel Foley. And that would be very similar to how Inspector Clouseau is in the Pink Panther films or 007 in the James Bond series. 
any place where a brash, loudmouthed cop like Axel Foley was going to make big waves could be a potential location. And the primary story idea for the next entry was going to have Axel taking a vacation in London and something happens where his curious nature leads him to getting involved in solving a crime that has the prim and proper police at Scotland Yard stymied. Now, Murphy voiced that he wanted to work again somehow with Ronnie Cox, John Ashton, and Judge Reinhold. He had a lot of fun ad-libbing with them. So they came up with the notion to have Captain Bo Gomiel heading to Europe to attend this international conference for police chiefs. And then something bad happens to him. And so Axel and Rosewood and Taggart show up to try to save their friend. Now, in May of 1985, Sports Illustrated journalist Dan Jenkins and his writing partner, Bud Schrake, they wrote up the London-based Axel Foley script. While Paramount did love their completed draft, there was a fatal obstacle because Murphy paid London a visit. And upon stepping outside of the airport, Murphy was hit by the, the trademark bracing cold of London, and he proclaimed, I hate this. So... They decided, well, while Murphy was out there, they were going to send him to Paris to check it out and see if he liked that any better. But after Murphy stopped in Paris, he exclaimed, I hate this even more. Now, thinking that Murphy must somehow want sunny weather and, and lush environs, very much like Beverly Hills, the studio did offer Hawaii as another backup. But Murphy decided to nix this outright. He was tired of traveling and he wanted to do the film somewhere closer to home. And at this point, the logical solution was just to try to find a way to set it again in Beverly Hills. At this time out, instead of being a fish out of water, the, the humorous hook would come from Axel Foley being a, a young guy coming to terms with an adult world. So Shrake and Jenkins, they drafted a new script. It was entitled Beverly Hills Security Guard. And in this script... Foley goes undercover as a Beverly Hills warehouse rent-a-cop. He would help Taggart and Rosewood solve a series of burglaries of priceless art. The culprit is this security service that's being run by somebody named Lawrence, who was formerly known as a major criminal in Detroit known as Tony Lulu. Axel at some point would have a romance with a young female security guard named Lucy Wilson, and a lot of culture clash jokes would abound, such as showing that inmates in the Beverly Hills jail watching Dynasty on the prison TVs or, or winos in the prison looking like Crockett from Miami Vice. They're dressed in very fine Armani suits. Unfortunately for them, Murphy did not care for this. He thought that the comedy here was just way too broad. It was too obvious. And it seemed to be absent a lot of that action that was usually needed to counterbalance the story also regurgitated a lot of the same beats as the first film in Murphy's mind. So Murphy felt that there was really no rush. They could continue working on this script. He wanted to do different movies before he would play Axel Foley again. And light up next was a film called The Golden Child. And following that, he wanted to do either a, this dramedy about a black vaudeville actor who finds himself in charge of a young child. It was called Butterscotch at the time. Later, it was called The Butterscotch Kid. He also had another idea in mind that he co-wrote called The Key. Murphy also had another film idea in mind. He would film his stand-up comedy routine and music concert, the music concert that was promoting his music album, How Could It Be? It would be filmed and then later released as a theatrical movie after the release of Beverly Hills Cop 2. But after The Golden Child proved somewhat disappointing 
critically as well as commercially, Murphy did feel an internal pressure that he needed to keep his momentum up. He needed a surefire hit to avoid losing any kind of box office luster. Butterscotch, he thought, was too much of a gamble, so he repackaged it as a starring vehicle for his comedian friend Arsenio Hall, and he would take the role as the director. Meanwhile, Paramount gave Murphy an extra incentive to escalate Beverly Hills Cop 2 as his next film because they renegotiated his five-picture contract and they would pay him $8 million salary and a percentage of its gross, plus $4 million to his production company. So a revised draft of the Shrake and Jenkins script now finds Axel posing as a security guard to stop the theft of Defense Department weaponry that's being shipped out of Fredericks of Hollywood containers. Action beats were injected in there, including a shootout at the airport in Detroit, as well as taking down a theft ring from out-of-work actors in Beverly Hills at this market called Keish and Carey. While Shrake and Jenkins' draft scripts were, again, well-regarded by the producers as well as Paramount, Murphy's manager, Bob Wax, he pushed to scrap the script immediately. He argued that Murphy was just never going to go for this, and Wax was just too embarrassed to even show Murphy this script, and that effectively led to the removal of the screenwriters. Now, in February of 1986, Murphy and Wax came up with their own ideas for what they wanted to do in the second film. They envisioned Axel Foley dressing very fine in an Armani suit. He would be driving a red Testarossa Ferrari, using that for an undercover sting operation that takes him eventually to Beverly Hills. One of the scenes would involve Axel going to the Beverly Hills Gun Club, and there would be some yucks there. They dubbed their nemesis the Alphabet Bandit, who would be this anonymous criminal who leaves cryptic messages at the scene of the crime, so it would be more of a mystery element. Foley, once again, teaming up with his friends in the Beverly Hills Police Department to crack the case. Murphy and Wax talked about these new ideas to Simpson and Bruckheimer, and they told them to take their ideas to Paramount executive David Kilpatrick, and he would hand these ideas off to a new screenwriter to try to flesh out into something that was workable as a film. As far as the director goes, Martin Brest did turn down several times lucrative offers for him to return as the director, but he stood his ground. He said he did not want to repeat himself artistically. So Simpson and Bruckheimer had to look elsewhere. They immediately started pursuing Tony Scott. Tony Scott had just finished directing Top Gun for them, and it was a huge success. Now, Scott was initially hesitant because he did want to work with Murphy, but he didn't want to get involved in doing a sequel. But eventually, Simpson and Bruckheimer won him over because they promised him that he would be able to do the sequel his way. He didn't have to recreate what Brest had done, but... Murphy was a bit tepid when hearing that Tony Scott might direct. He didn't have any kind of comedy credentials, he thought. Yet, Murphy did decide to meet him, and he warmed up to Tony Scott after they shot several games together of pool. And Tony Scott was a good guy, and he played a good game. Scott was struck immediately by how shy Murphy actually was in person, in contrast to his loudmouth persona on stage and in comedy. He was much more introverted. Murphy jokingly told Scott that he would approve of him taking the director's job so long as he made him look as good as Tom Cruise did during the volleyball scene in Top Gun. With Scott in place, Paramount wanted the production to begin in October of 1986 to ensure that it would be on time to release on Memorial Day weekend of 1987, but Tony Scott, he felt that this was too soon. 
and he threatened to drop out if they were going to actually choose October. So Paramount and the producers tried to do some damage control over the next 10 days. They made a lot of concessions to Scott to try to keep him locked in to make sure that this film was a go, including postponing the shoot to November. They allowed him to inject more action into the sequel. They granted him carte blanche to choose his own production crew, in addition to paying him nearly a million dollars in salary and also a generous profit percentage on top of that. So with Scott still on board, they needed a screenwriter, and they needed him quickly, so they borrowed Highlander scribe Larry Ferguson's services from another Paramount producer. Ferguson happened to have a, a reputation of being a skillful writer, and he in particular had a love of anything to do with cops. He seemed like the perfect choice to try to expand the Murphy Wax ideas into reality. Ferguson determined that one of the Alphabet Bandit's victims should be Detective Bogomil, and so Foley would fly out to Beverly Hills to find the culprit when this new police chief in Beverly Hills called Lutz seems too inept to solve the case. Ferguson holed himself up in his home in Santa Barbara, working around the clock. After submitting his draft, Paramount returned it with a list of suggested changes for additional revisions that he would spend the next two weeks completing. After that, Scott demanded another revision. This time he wanted much more action. He was going to go full bore into action in part two. Scott's philosophy was that if they injected more action, if they hit harder with all of those big stunts and, and set pieces, that the audience was going to laugh even harder when the humor arrives. So between the high octane action and the big laughs, Scott wanted audiences to leave the theater after watching Beverly Hills Cop 2 completely exhausted from the experience. Now, unfortunately, Murphy was not happy ultimately, with the Ferguson script either. He didn't think it was very funny. It wasn't nearly as snappy as he had envisioned. It seemed a little slow. And by this point, Ferguson was becoming very burnt out trying to do another pass. So Simpson and Bruckheimer asked veteran teleplay writer Dennis Klein to perform a polish, try to punch up the comedy, get Axel from Detroit to Beverly Hills much sooner than Ferguson in the script, they also pulled in to try to save time script Dr. Warren Scarin, who worked on the final 10 drafts of Top Gun, to work in tandem with Klein on different parts of the script. Scarin's main charge was to try to give more warmth to the character of Axel Foley, as well as add some suspense to the detective work. Scarin spent 10 days on his polish, and then he continued providing additional phone consultations to try to fix dialogue issues that arose during pre-production as well as during the production. In the script, he added a phone conversation that would take place early in the film between Axel Foley and uh, Captain Bogomil to try to discuss their upcoming fishing trip. And this would suggest that they had remained good friends since the events of the last film. Scarin also introduced Bogomil's daughter, a young woman named Jan, and that would further emphasize that Axel was now a close family friend of Bogomil, which is why he was intent on getting to Beverly Hills right away to deal with who had done his friend wrong. Scarin also removed from the Ferguson script this introductory scene of Axel Foley taking down this credit card scam at a Detroit restaurant. That scene would get revived later during post-production reshoots because Simpson and Bruckheimer, they felt that Scott's preferred cut leaned a little too heavily on action and they needed a scene early in the film to establish much-needed humor in those first few minutes. Scarin also wanted Jan to be directly involved in the third act theatrics, but Simpson wanted the focus to stay mostly on Axel instead of on this new character that most of the audience did not really know or really care for. 
Additional jokes were also inserted to try to uh, keep the humor involved during the lengthy stretches of action that uh, Tony Scott had preferred. To deliver additional cheesecake appeal, Tony Scott wanted Axel and company to visit the Playboy Mansion. This would be the first big Hollywood film to do so. They would add additionally a volleyball scene, not dissimilar to the one that Scott added to Top Gun. Judge Reinhold, he came back, he only agreed to return on condition that he wasn't going to be playing Billy Rosewood again as a naive kind of dimwit as he was in the first film. He felt that after two years more being on the job that Rosewood would be much more confident, he would be much more assured with that additional experience. Tony Scott was the one who decided that Rosewood would have some sort of major fetish for firearms and ultra-violent Stallone films like Rambo and Cobra, which Cobra, by the way, of course, I discussed this on my previous podcast episode. It was a movie idea that came about from Stallone rewriting the original Beverly Hills Cop script to a more action-oriented vehicle that Paramount didn't want to make, so he decided to take it his ideas elsewhere, and it became Cobra. After Marcello Mastriani turned down a big role in the film, Dennis Hopper was offered this lucrative role, playing the main baddie Maxwell Dent. But in the end, he decided to take only a third of the money offer to direct the L.A. street gang film called Colors instead. After a long delay, the role is finally cast with Jürgen Prochnow three weeks into filming. The role of Carla Fry, that was originally a male character in the scripts, but it changed in October of 1986, just before production, to a female character, and that was for the purpose specifically of attaching Sylvester Stallone's wife, Bridget Nielsen, because Scott thought that this would actually make for a much more interesting movie to have a female, a sexy female character there. Scott had this vision of uh, Nielsen coming across like a white Grace Jones, kind of a badass woman. It's widely thought that Eddie Murphy himself, a good friend of Stallone, did encourage Scott to get Nielsen in the film as a favor to Stallone. Gil Hill, he was brought back as Gilbert Todd, Axel's police chief in Detroit, they also brought back Paul Reiser in a very small supporting role as a fellow officer in Detroit. However, only exterior scenes were really shot in Detroit. Murphy was really not involved in any of those. He didn't want to go there again. They postponed a lot of those scenes until later in the shoot so that the weather would grow worse, which would provide more contrast with the ever sunny skies of Beverly Hills. Bronson Pinchot was asked to return for his bit role as Serge. But he did pass. He was doing the, the hit TV show called Perfect Strangers at the time. And he didn't have the time or really the inclination to, to come back and, and do a role that was very similar to Balky on that show. Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer also were looking for additional help. They asked Rolling Stone publisher Jan Wenner to audition for a major role that never manifested. Now, at the time of the beginning of filming on November 5th, 1986, the script still had not been finalized, and not even all of the locations were yet detailed. It was still in major flux, so they were going without a lot of a lot of ideas of where the script was really going to go. In addition, complications arose because it was rumored that Murphy was sometimes not showing up on the set. Tony Scott did deny to the press that uh, Murphy was ever a no-show, but he did admit that Murphy did show up late on many occasions. Scott still, even with showing up late, he did enjoy working with Murphy, and he felt that he had great instincts that might be lost, perhaps, if he overprepared. Murphy would constantly change scenes. Scott was very tolerant of him doing this because he, he felt that Murphy often made the scenes better, at least funnier. 
While Scott was a meticulous planner, he storyboarded daily how he was going to do the shoot for each day's scenes. Murphy came in mostly just to improvise a lot of his dialogue. It was a regular occurrence for Murphy to just look at the script for the upcoming scene, proclaim it was awful, and then come back later having come up with a better idea of his own. He felt that as long as they gave him just kind of the beat of what was supposed to occur for the scene he was going to do, he could take it wherever it needed to go on the fly. The script supervisor, of course, had a very difficult time. Murphy never said a line from the script verbatim. He never delivered dialogue the same way twice. Murphy was always changing scenes. For instance, he hated a particular scene as it was scripted where he gets interrogated by Chief Lutz. He left the shoot for a few minutes and then came back later with this improvised Jamaican psychic character called Johnny Wishbone. Murphy also included improvised scenes of Axel trying to connive his way into the gun club and also into the Playboy Mansion sometime later as somebody sent to clean up poop in the pool. That was something that he completely ad-libbed. Murphy did add a little bit more complication this time out. He made public outings especially difficult because he would show up everywhere, including in his luxurious trailer on the set, with a whole entourage of people, sometimes up to 50 people, he would bring with him. Much of the time, nobody, not even his manager, Bob Wax, was going to be able to speak to Murphy except through one of his family or friends around him. Murphy's reclusiveness and his insulation started drawing comparisons in the press to Elvis. Murphy, he objected to that comparison. He said he was more like Garbo, except that he wanted to be left alone rather than be alone. Murphy claims that he had been too mistreated by many others, especially the press, so he preferred keeping the company of positive people around him at all times. Well into the shoot, unfortunately, Stallone and Murphy's friendship disintegrated. Stallone had heard a rumor that Eddie Murphy had had an affair with his wife, Bridget Nielsen. Now, Murphy immediately called Stallone, who was very, very angry to talk to him, and he vehemently refuted that this was a vicious rumor and there was no truth to it, but Stallone somehow just could not stop believing the rumor and the friendship, unfortunately, took a turn for the worse. In Nielsen's 2011 autobiography, she also denies that she ever had an affair with Murphy. She loved working with Murphy, but they never had anything romantic going on. Stallone and Nielsen's marriage, though, further found itself on the rocks after Stallone took away her credit card because she had spent her allotted $350,000 annual allowance lavishly partying with the film's cast and crew. She also did have an affair, not with Murphy, but with the director, Tony Scott, notoriously promiscuous Tony Scott. Scott would later call the affair horrendous. Scott, at that time, was all but completely separated from his commercials producer wife, Glynis, who lived in London. He had just married her the year before, and they were already on the outs. Further rumors abounded that Nielsen was in an affair with her female personal assistant, Kelly Sanger, and that Jackie Stallone, Sly's mother, was the one who found the ladies in bed together. Stallone vehemently denied all of the rumors publicly, but he did divorce Nielsen quickly afterward. Nielsen, to this day, absolutely denies that she ever had any kind of romance with Sanger or really any other woman. Perhaps not coincidentally, Tony Scott did divorce his wife, Glynis, around the same time, although apparently not to get together with Nielsen. Nielsen later stated in her memoir that she regretted not finding a way to make it work with Scott instead of connecting with her next beau, New York Jets defensive end Mark Gastineau. Now, on the last day of the scheduled shoot, they still had not completed all of the intended scenes. Scott said that the shoot was going to go over schedule, 
And that was because it took a lot of time to do all of these elaborate action sequences. He underestimated how long they would take. They asked Eddie Murphy to stay for a few more days to finish his work, but he said that he would only do it for a million dollars a day, even though Paramount uh, was very generous with Murphy, not only with their salary, but they also paid out of their pockets to cover Murphy's legal expenses prior to the shoot, just to get him on the set when he was sued by his former manager, King Broder, for skimping on his share from previous work. The remaining scenes had to be shot using Murphy's body double, at least for a while, till they realized they needed Murphy. Murphy wanted additional consolations. He wanted to be given, gifted, the red Ferrari from the movie in exchange for doing additional scenes and publicity shoots. When Simpson and Bruckheimer refused to give him the car, Murphy staged a sit-in protest until Paramount caved and got him an identical car. The producers, though, still deny that this ever happened and that Murphy bought his own car. Murphy, though, was known to actually, whenever he felt depressed because he suffers from depression, that he would go out and buy a car kind of to, to make himself happy. So maybe there is some truth to that. In total, 11 screenwriters contributed to the 22 revisions that were done before the end of production, including David Geiler and even Sylvester Stallone early on, provided some ideas, especially in regards to Nielsen's part. Murphy and Wax applied for and received a story credit for concocting the alphabet bandit scenario and a few of the scenes that were used in the film that would provide them, in addition to all of their money, lucrative royalties for the video sales and TV showings later. The Writers Guild ruled that Scarin and Ferguson were going to have the actual screenplay credit. That did spark litigation from Ferguson. He demanded sole credit for the screenplay and story. He stated that Murphy really did not contribute anything himself. The ideas that he did use actually came from Bob Wax. His involvement, though, was only four points out of the 33 that were used in the plot in Ferguson's script. Ferguson argued that Scarin actually only contributed to tweaking about a third of the finished script. Shrake and Jenkins also joined later Ferguson's suit, but after this went through several years of arbitration and court cases, the initial WGA credits stood as they were. The soundtrack for Beverly Cop is another asset. It features George Michael's I Want Your Sex as its first single that gained, unfortunately for them, a Razzie Award for Worst Original Song. By contrast, Detroit's own Bob Seger provided the title song called Shakedown that received an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song. Nielsen, who was launching her singing career at the time, she was trying to get involved with the soundtrack. She coordinated with Madonna's producers, Giorgio Moroder, as well as Jelly Bean Benitez, to do some songs for the soundtrack, but unfortunately none made the cut, or maybe fortunately, depending on what you think of uh, Nielsen as a singer. Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they were begged to produce four tracks for the album, but they declined. Now, Tony Scott was in a rush to try to complete editing of Biblio's Cop 2 in time for the release date of Memorial Day weekend, but he had only six weeks instead of the customary six months of post-production to get it all together. He needed to perform a number of pickup shots in those reshoots as well, so he was working around the clock. Despite all of it coming together in haste, kind of patched together right at the last minute, Beverly Hills Cop 2 still had that momentum from the first film going for it, and it did very well at the box office, particularly in its first month release, where it secured the top spot in U.S. receipts. It also grossed about $150 million in the U.S. alone. If you include the worldwide take, the film made altogether over $300 million, and that made it the top earner of all movies for 1987. 
Although he did heavily promote it at the time of its release, Eddie Murphy would later be very disenchanted with Beverly Hills Cop 2. He called it in interviews sometime later the most successful mediocre picture in history. He felt it was neither as spontaneous nor as funny as the first film. As far as what I think about it, I do think that it ranks pretty highly among follow-ups to films I love. I mean, Ghostbusters 2 was also a big disappointment for me, even though I don't think it's a horrible film. I don't think Beverly Hills Cop 2 is the worst film ever made, but I was extremely disappointed with the direction that it took. What seemed to work so phenomenally well in the first film, it took those ideas and then just overdid it to death to the point where you just didn't like it anymore. The action especially is way over the top. The comedy here is far more obnoxious and crude. The characters and their interactions are are cartoonish and cliched. I feel like the subtlety of Martin Brest's light touch from the first film is lost in favor of the slick and stylized mechanics here of Tony Scott. He was just coming off of Top Gun. He was very fresh in the mind of doing that kind of action film, grinding through these seemingly endless action scenes at the cost of story cohesion. Scott I don't think Scott has very much comedic ear. He kind of had a begrudging attitude toward comedy to try to allow gags in this film. He knew that people were expecting comedy, but his preference was to stick to his wheelhouse of all-out action. So even with injecting more humor in the pickup shots and the reshoots and adding additional dialogue in the end, it still feels very heavy on the explosive action. It feels probably much more like the film that Sylvester Stallone wanted to do for the original Beverly Hills Cop that Paramount nixed before they ended up hiring Eddie Murphy. The characterizations here, if you're a fan of the first film, feel very off. Axel Foley used to be a regular guy with kind of a street-savvy Detroit edge. Now he's very GQ for this film. He almost feels like he's somehow out of Beverly Hills. He sports a fancier car. He has more stylish clothing. He's very well manicured. He also knows like a lot of these MacGyverish tricks to try to do with everyday objects to bypass things like high-tech security systems with a stick of chewing gum and the like. I think Murphy in films worked best. He always seemed to have worked best when he's hungry and humble. When he's coming across like a vain big shot, I think the comedy does fizzle. The humor relies, unfortunately, here on a lot of vulgarities, a lot of channeling of sexual references or potty humor to squeeze out laughs. Foley cons his way into the Playboy Mansion as a, as a pool cleaner, claiming somebody pooped the pool. In this scene that seems completely contrived just as a reason to get more scantily clad women in, the shtick of adopting funny accents and characters, I think that was much funnier in a film that came out after Beverly Hills Cop that was very similar called Fletch with, with Chevy Chase. I think Fletch is a much better example of a, a successor to the style and spirit of the first Beverly Hills Cop than this, even though it had the other returning characters in addition to Axel Foley are different. Vogamil, now this softy, this this caring family man. Taggart is much more sexist in this film. It's kind of a turnoff. Rosewood, this gun fetishist, very cartoonish. Somebody who would make dirty Harry blush. It just It just goes way, way, way over the top. The first film, I think, had an easily discernible plot. It was used as a springboard to comedy. This sequel seems to be mired in having sketchy characters continuously describing this convoluted and, and very uninteresting, in the end, plot. And that leaves very little rooting interest for audiences in the action scenes as to how they play out. Ultimately, it contains very few memorable laughs. It doesn't have many more thrills. 
There are very few situations that prove ultimately as interesting to watch, whereas the first film really carried through a lot of that energy all throughout the film. This one is sputtering throughout to garner your attention. Even the soundtrack, I think, which proved so vital for the first film's success commercially and critically, it's not quite as much of an enhancement in generating that kind of needed energy in this film. The soundtrack is fine, it's just... It's just not used as well, and it's not as as ultimately memorable as the first films. So ultimately, because this film offers very little that we enjoyed in the first outing, except to bring back the same actors, and even they aren't playing the same characters as those we come to know, ultimately it's a big disappointment, and that's why I can only give Beverly Hills Cop 2 two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that I do think it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being something I could wholeheartedly recommend to most people, and that thing which it's lacking here is just, I guess, any kind of balance between the humor and the action and any kind of real commitment to what they were doing so well in the first film. It's too much Tony Scott, not enough Eddie Murphy for this film, and it stalls much more than it soars to the point where I can only view it as a two-star movie. It has its moments, but not nearly enough for me to say that it was successful in any kind of way. I know that there are people that still love Beverly Hills Cop 2, probably because they're big Eddie Murphy fans, or maybe they're just a fan of more action and less comedy, I guess. It definitely is a good-looking film, for what it's worth. So aesthetically, maybe it has its, its fans. If you have your own thoughts about Beverly Hills Cop 2 that you want to impart, if you want to argue with me that actually it's a much better film than Two Stars, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page are also there. Quipster at gmail.com is the best way to get in touch with me if you have something to say that's a little bit more elaborate. As far as what I'm going to be getting into next, well, it's a, it's a film that came out actually the following year, and it features another cop, a black cop, a tough cop from Detroit, except this one starring Carl Weathers for a film called Action Jackson. And that'll be the next film that I do. And there's going to be a particular person that's going to be very happy that I do that because I've been asked by this person on multiple occasions, when am I going to get to Action Jackson? And she's going to be very happy. I'll name drop her on the following show for being so tenacious about getting me to uh, to review this. So if you haven't checked it out already, Action Jackson, it has, uh, in addition to Carl Weathers, it has uh, Vanity, the Prince protege in it as well as Sharon Stone and Craig T. Nelson. So check that out if you haven't checked it out already. And you'll be prepared for my take on that on the next episode. Until then, thank you everyone for listening and joining me as we travel around the world in 80s movies. Sunset.